Gibbs and Gambo, Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Hanging out with you on this Friday afternoon. Thanks for uh, letting us keep you company today. Talk about what's going on in sports. It's the Burns and Gambo Show here on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader, along with John Gambadero. I'm Dave Burns. Suns last night, winners against the Brooklyn Nets. It was about time. It had been a while. Three-game losing streak. All of the struggles. I think it was like 17 of their last 22 games they had lost. Not that this is necessarily means that it's all over, but certainly they're starting to get guys back. Cam Johnson last night, maybe Chris Paul at some point this weekend. I, I know he was close last night, but not quite ready against the Nets. The, the Suns have the Pacers tomorrow, the Grizzlies on Sunday. And then after those two games, the schedule does get a little lighter for the next couple of weeks. And then eventually Booker and everything comes back. And then, of course, Gambo, there's the trade deadline, which we are now less than three weeks away from. It is uh, three weeks from yesterday, matter of fact, the trade deadline in the NBA. I want to play this uh, quote here, this cut from Sham Sharania. He was on Bally Sports, and he was Matt Ishbia was at the game last night, the incoming owner for the Suns. How his impending arrival impacts the Suns at the deadline. We're 20 or so days away from the NBA trade deadline, and I'm told since Matt Ishbia and, and his announcement that he's going to take over the Suns' ownership has come out, uh, the Suns have actually informed teams that they're willing to move a first-round pick and, and potentially take on salary long-term for good players and winning acquisitions. So to me, you're starting to begin to see the influence of the Matt Ishbia, Justin Ishbia or, you know, regime and organization uh, and leadership under their ownership. I know you did the Gambo thing about this. What did you find out? Yeah, it's a comment that James Jones made a while ago. Um, and, and I remember this, but James Jones a while ago had said that, you know, you know for, the, for the right player, for a really good player, would we take on salary? Yes. Would we give up a draft pick? Yes. Those type of players just aren't available right now. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, that comment that that James had, and I think Shams is kind of playing off that comment that in the past they have said that they'd be willing to do that. Um, it's just you just you just wonder if that guy becomes available for them to do it. Right now, I mean, I don't think that that guy is available. And you know, first round picks. You know, listen, a lot of times you you, know, you got to be careful with first round picks because you say, okay, it's protected up until this, and if it's not that, then it'll turn into two seconds. So. You know, you know, would the Suns give up an unprotected first round pick? I don't know that the type of player that they would give up an unprotected first round pick would become available for them. Um, but a guy, you know, a, a pick that's protected up into a certain amount, and then if it if it doesn't convey, then it's two second rounders. Yeah, that stuff happens a lot. It's just a question of if we're talking about protections, you know, how many protections are you are you putting on it? Because I, I I think the the hope I don't know if I use would use the word assumption, but I I think the hope and maybe the assumption is the Suns are still well, but you know whether they're a championship team or not kind of remains to be seen with what happens the rest of this season and what happens in the off season, obviously. But I would think if they were going to trade a pick that had certain protections on it, that the chances are good it would be able to convey because I think we think the Suns are going to be good, right? I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we think they're going to hit rock bottom in the next couple of years as long as Devin Booker stays healthy and productive and does the superstar stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know if you have to worry about you know, protections kind of keeping that pick going from somewhere. But I don't, I don't know. It, it just depends on where you want to set the protection level and how careful you want to make sure you are that you don't accidentally give up a really good pick. I mean, the unprotected picks, man, you and I made a big deal about that 
years ago with that unprotected pick that got from Miami. That thing ended up changing hands huh. four or five like different times. times. Right, yeah, it ended up being... Yeah. I, it was I, so valuable at the time because it was so far away. You know, when you've got an unprotected pick that's that far away, you know, it is very valuable. Completely unprotected. Now, because just the thought that it could be, you know, you just don't know. It could be the number one pick in the draft. It doesn't have protection on it, so it has the potential to be a top five pick. Or, um, so that Miami pick was very valued. But with a good organization, Mike, like Miami, they tend to win. They tend to win enough games to where it never conveys to what uh, what the potential for right. it is. And that's what, that's kind of what I'm thinking with the Suns too. Is that that I, I if that's what we're talking about here, trading a first round pick but putting protections on it, it I, I feel pretty comfortable in knowing that the Suns will be good enough over the next few years with what they've got to not have to worry about giving up a pick that you would really, really be regretful that you gave up. But again, so much of it depends on the player that's going to be available and who's going to be out there. And, and you know, whether it's whether it's James and what he said on this topic a month ago or Shams and what he's saying on this topic this morning, you know, the, the big thing is going to be a, do you think you have a team this year that is worth moving a first-round pick for or taking on salary for? And then B, who is that player that is that player even available? Right? You just alluded to that a second ago. Is that guy right. even around at the trade deadline for you to even think about? You know what? That's the guy we'd give up a first-round pick for. Or that's the guy we'd be willing to to count against our cap for the next two years because we think he's that much of a difference maker. I, I, I don't know if that guy's going to be out there at the deadline or not. It's just, I, it just depends. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think I can talk about. Like, sure. you know, there was a story the other day that Toronto's looking at centers and DeAndre Ayton's name was mentioned. I do not expect any deals with Toronto that I see right now, and I really don't expect that DeAndre Ayton's going to get traded. I don't think that there's... I, I expect and I anticipate that DeAndre is on this team for the remainder of this season. Now, in the offseason, I don't know. But, um, you know, I would not expect that he would waive his no trade. I would not expect that he, I would not expect that he gets traded. And I'm not hearing anything as far as Toronto's concerned. Uh, you know, making a deal with Toronto because people believe that they could blow it up with A.G. Ananobi and Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet and Trent and a lot of the Toronto names have come about. But I don't see anything with the Suns in Toronto. And I Certainly don't see anything with DeAndre Ayton being traded at the deadline. He can here. he can void the deal for a year after he signed. He can void a trade for a year after he signed the deal with the Suns, right before they max the offer sheet. So they could theoretically trade him without his ability to void it this upcoming offseason if they yes. wanted to. Okay. Yeah, it's trading DeAndre Eaton now. He had a good game last night, but it's been such an uneven season for him. I, I just can't imagine there's a huge marketplace for his services. No, it's right damned if you do. We've talked about this so much. If he plays really well, you want to keep him. If he plays really poorly, you want to move him, but he's got a high salary and nobody else is going to want. So it's a you know, it's a catch-22 with DeAndre because you just, you, you, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Is there a, is there a middle ground where he plays well enough for somebody to want him and pay that contract? And for you to want to give him up, I mean, that's I don't think so. <laughs> you know, yeah. he plays really well. Keep him. He plays really poorly. Trade him. But nobody wants to trade for him and pay thirty million dollars a year. You know, for a center for the next three years. So much just depends on over the next three weeks. Do, do more teams start to fall out of it? Do more teams start to think they don't really have a shot at the play-in tournament? Do more teams feel like they're in the in sell mode because? 
everyone's so, I think the last time I looked at the standings, and I don't think anything's changed, I think the last time I looked at the standings, there were only five teams that you could truly say, okay, they're done. They're done. They're out. They're not, they're not going to make the play-in tournament. They have nothing to play for. They might as well sell off their pieces. There just aren't that many of them. It, there was, on The Athletic today, There, I, I saw this, and I, I smiled, and I thought of you when I saw it, because it's just got you tattooed all over it. Um, it's the NBA Trade Deadline Big Board. And it's like three different NBA writers at The Athletic, and they kind of put their heads together, and they came up with a list, in their opinion, of a big board of players who could get traded before the deadline. And they ordered the list in order of like a combination of how big of a deal is the player if he gets traded, how likely is a trade to happen, um, how good of a value is the player based off of what you're paying him and what he brings on the floor, everything. Basically, kind of a list of the most impactful guys who could get moved at the trade deadline. Jay Crowder was 17th on the list. Yes. Way down yeah. there. And I, I, I'm like, I clicked on the link and I'm like, okay, Miles Turner, John Collins, mm-hmm. Boyan Bogdanovich, Kyle Kuzma, Emmanuel <laughs> Quickly, Jakob Pertle. I'm like, where the hell is Jay Crowder? Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, there he is. He's 17th yeah. on the list. He was way down there on this thing. You know, is, you know, I'm fortunate that I could talk to a lot of different teams around the league and go right, you know, right, right to the top of these teams and talk with top executives and GMs and assistant GMs and stuff like that and you know and I've you know and I and I I always we always have these conversations about you know what my conversations have detailed and you know for a long time now I've been saying it's like there's not a lot of value for Jay Crowder like he, there's not like teams don't value him that highly he is a older player on an expiring contract who's not very athletic now he's a good player but he's you know most everybody else looks at him the same way the Suns were looking at him this year he's a role player he's not my top one of my top five guys I'd like him as a sixth guy or a seventh guy guy, maybe even an eighth guy. And so when you start to talk about that and you're trading for a guy like that, you know, what's the value? The value is another role player. We mentioned the other day is like Milwaukee and Pat Connaughton. Like maybe that's the type of guy that you could get. I think everybody is off of the, hey, can you get Kyle Kuzma for Jay Crowder? No, you can't. Yeah. No. Kyle, by the way, Kyle Kuzma was fourth on this list for what it's right. worth. Right. Yeah. You know, look at all the, you know, the good players that were mentioned. Can you get this guy for Jay Crowder. Can you get that? No. No, you can't. Nobody's giving you one of their good players for Jay Crowder. No. They'll give you, you know, one of their role players who's playing 15 to 20 minutes a game that they feel like, you know, I'll, I'll trade this guy out and I'll get Jay. It's different. Like, I same type of player, but okay, this Jay, Jay brings physicalness and this guy may bring finesse. I'd rather have a physical player. So, you're looking for a similar type of role player. You're not going to get, you know, a, a guy that's going to be a top five guy for you in a Jay Crowder trade. In Innings Festival is back. The two-day music festival featuring Green Day, Eddie Vedder, Weezer, The Offspring, and so much more returns to Tempe Beach Park on February 25th and 26th. Tickets just went on sale. You can head to the contest page at ArizonaSports.com for complete details and your chance to win tickets. There are 10 teams that need a new offensive coordinator, and that list is likely to grow. Much like the head coaching position, how attractive is the Cardinals' OC spot? Talk about it next on the Burns and Gambo Show. Football Friday with Burns and Gambo. Presented by 72 Souls. 
Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. It's good to have Gambo back in the fold here on the Burns and Gambo Show on this Friday. One of the things that we briefly, briefly, briefly talked about yesterday was hitting zoom out a little bit and not just looking at teams with head coaching openings because there's only five of them. And, and unless something really unexpected happens, which I suppose still could, it doesn't appear as if that list is going to change. It's kind of a, honestly, kind of a quiet year for head coaching openings. I'm used to there being seven, eight, more, you know, and and the, the carousel just spinning out of control. That hasn't happened yet this year. If you want a coaching carousel that is large, has a lot of openings, has a lot of question marks, and truly matters, not that the head coaching doesn't, because it does, but I mean matters to another level as well, look at the offensive coordinator openings. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And Gambo, for the Arizona Cardinals, especially if they go with a defensive-minded head coach that ends up being kind of the, the cornerstone of their hire, they are going to quickly have to pivot to an offensive coordinator to make sure they pair the right guy with Kyler Murray. It is of essential nature that they do this as quickly as they can. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree if they go defensive-minded coach, it's, you know, you want to get the right guy in there. You know, for Kyler, somebody with experience, somebody will, you know, more or less get through with Kyler. But, you know, that that list is, man, the quarterbacks that you could work with, you could go work with Justin Herbert right now. Sure. Right? I mean, you know, maybe Lamar Jackson. um, like there's some pretty good uh, there's some pretty good jobs out there that are available, and I was surprised the Broncos with Russell Wilson was even behind the Cardinals, and you know the but what is it was it 13 different teams? Yeah, that, yeah. Let, that, let me tell everybody what you're referring to here, just so we've got all the right context here. There was a story that I saw and I passed along to you on the Athletic, ranking the offensive coordinator openings from best to worst. Okay, they and there's 13 of them. All right, in no particular order. And these are teams that are are looking for head coaches and presumably also will be looking for OCs. And these are just teams that have OC openings right now. It's the Colts, the Jets, the Texans, the Broncos, the Titans, the Panthers, the Commanders, the Patriots, the Ravens, the Bucks, the Chargers, the Rams, and of course the Cardinals. Now that was out of order. I, I deliberately jumbled it up. They list the best offensive coordinator gig available right now as the Chargers. No question. Duh. It's Justin Herbert. Just, right. Duh. I mean, right, right. That's the best. That's one of the best young quarterbacks in the league. You got Mike Williams. You got Keenan Allen. You've got, yeah. I mean, you know, they 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 got a decent offensive line. Absolutely, that's a great job. Now the other ones, to be honest with you, there's a lot of them that a lot of uncertainty surrounded them, and they're rated higher than the Cardinals. That must be a lack of respect for Kyla Murray, or just a belief that these other systems are going to be great. Like it's, it's a go, go through the go through them. Okay, Rams are number two. Matthew Stafford's old, and he's coming off of an injury. Yeah, you and know, they don't have draft picks, and they don't. You know, that's you, you know what the funny part is: the why they rank the Rams so high. I, I didn't realize this until I read a little deeper into the story. The reason why they ranked the Rams so Where's high, McVay? because offensive coordinators under McVeigh get head coaching jobs. 
Zach Taylor. You know, Zach Taylor, Kevin O'Connell, uh, Matt LaFleur. It, it, that, this position has served as a springboard for previous but, top offensive assistants. And I'm like, you I don't call no. the, you don't get to call the plays. I know. Yeah. I, that's, that's, you're the offensive coordinator. You don't get, you don't get to call the plays. How is that, how is that a better job than the Cardinals? And yet, because it is, it's almost like, man, if I hire you, you're a Sean McVay protege. He's really good at what he does. It means you. You must be good at what you do. And to be honest with you, look, it's kind of worked, right? Matt LaFleur has done really good things in Green Bay. Zach Taylor has done really good things in Cincinnati. Kevin O'Connell in his first year did really good things in Minnesota. There's almost a little bit of a track record now built in to hire whoever it is that Sean McVay's offensive coordinator is, even if the guy doesn't get to call plays, because that guy tends to know what he's doing or has a vision of how offenses should be run. I I think it's a little crazy, too, because I think the Matthew Stafford question is, I do not get the Buccaneers at number three. I don't get that. Right. I don't just get that fired Byron Leftwich. Todd Bowles, if he has a bad year next year, you could be out. So you don't have a lot of. Um, I would rather go with a new coach, thinking that guy's going to get two or three years, than go to a situation with a coach who's going to be on the hot seat because Bowles may start next year on the damn hot seat. Like, yeah. why would you want to go there, take a job, and a one year later they blow out the head coach? If they blow out the head coach, they're probably blowing you out too. There's good talent there. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, you know, it goes beyond the quarterback. Right, who's that quarterback? But who's their quarterback? Uh, Ravens come in at number four. Makes sense. Lamar Jackson, you know, assuming he's the we centerpiece think. of it all. Yeah, we, we think. think. I mean, is, are, you, are you sold that Lamar Jackson's going to be in Baltimore next year? Not 100%, no. I don't know how you could be based off of everything. I know what I know what John Harbaugh said the other day in the press conference, and I know what the GM said the other day in that same press conference. I, until I, based off of how that thing's gone the last couple of years, until I, I'm, I'm sure they'll probably franchise tag him if they think it's getting sideways on him. But how that story ends, I'll I'll make the big reveal here. The Colonels are ninth on this list, ninth behind the Commanders. And the Patriots and the Panthers and the Titans. And yeah, you're right. The big reason why the Cardinals are ninth. Quote, Kyler Murray seems to underperform in stretches and he has durability issues. When healthy, he's a special talent, as are wide receivers DeAndre Hopkins and Marquise Brown. James Conner is a reliable running back, and so the building blocks are in place for a successful offensive attack. But again, Murray's inconsistencies and questions about his leadership abilities give some around the league pause. Close quote. I was so surprised when I saw the Cardinals were that low on it. I really, really was. I, really I was looking was. at the. Uh, I was looking at the Jets. They're interviewing Chad O'Shea, Brian Johnson. I don't think people know who Chad O'Shea is. Uh, Browns wide receiver, coach, passing game coordinator. But I do think, think Brian Johnson is the Eagles quarterback coach. So he's probably going to get a job. There's just there are a lot of guys out there, right? Guys who are former offensive coordinators, guys who are passing game coordinators, guys who are quarterbacks coaches. So you find you want to find somebody that's got the ability to call plays. You might look at quarterback coaches because they'd say, "Okay, this is I need a quarterbacks coach. Somebody's going to be able to come in and really work with Kyler Murray." So I think there'll be a lot of guys out there, and you know they'll probably hire some offensive coordinator that nobody's ever heard of. Perhaps. But he might be he might be end up being good. 
I, I, th- I keep thinking of something I passed along earlier in the week too. Assuming, and we don't know for sure it's going to be, but assuming it's going to be if it's if it's going to be one of these defensive guys who gets the job, Brian Flores or Domingo Ryan's or whomever. I think it was Jim Trotter of NFL Network who, who had suggested and who had even said that defensive-minded coaches who are going into these interviews are not only saying who their offensive coordinator would be, they're saying who their offensive coordinator would be when their offensive huh. coordinator leaves to go get a head coaching job. Like, I, I, when this guy leaves, I'm going to have this guy as my quarterback's coach, and I'm going to promote him to be my offensive coordinator. And I will say, and I, I didn't put two and two together on this one, I was listening to the Big Red Rage when I was driving home from the show last night, and Paul Calvisi made mention something I had forgotten all about. Brian Flores, if he ends up getting the head coaching job, he has been really tied with Jim Caldwell as potentially his offensive coordinator that he would bring with him. Potentially. That's a great name. To any job. That would be a really interesting name to pair well, with Tyler Murray. Well, then here's the question. Could the could could the guy the head coach brings sway you in any way? Yes. To, make the, to make that decision? Yes. Could you be like, you know, it's really close between these two or three guys, but this guy's bringing Jim Caldwell and the other guys aren't. Yes. If you're looking at him like a package deal, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And should you? Should you look at it like a package deal? Depending on who the offensive coordinator the guy is saying is, yeah. I, I mean, I because I, you're you, – you, the Kyler Murray thing, it can't be – Understated, it's a big deal. You got to bring in an offensive coordinator. It's now or never to maximize Kyler Murray. If you don't maximize his value in the next couple of years, chances are a couple of years from now, when you can get off that cap number being as awful as it is, you're probably going to do it. You and, will. And, and so you, you, you've got, you're on the clock. You've got two or three years to figure out the best version of Kyler Murray, which, yeah, absolutely makes the offensive coordinator's well, job this cycle so important. To your point, put it this way I, I think the guy that they hire will ultimately either um, have Kyler Murray be the long-term quarterback here or have Kyler Murray out of here. The guy they hire, because there's not a lot of time now, right? I mean, you had Kyler's been in the league for four years, and you know you feel like in, in two years, if he doesn't make any strides, they're going to move on. You would think. They're not going to fire the offensive coordinator after a year, I don't think. I wouldn't. If I, Kyler doesn't make any strides, they're going to stop blaming it on Kyler and not on the not on the coaches anymore. You can text us your thoughts on the FanDuel text line. It's open for you right now at 620-620. When we come back, we know they just won last night, but it wasn't that long ago. A former high-profile member of the Suns said, quote, they should blow it up, close quote. Well, a couple weeks later, should they? That's next. Burns and Gambo. And Gambo. Afternoons on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. We are live from the Auction Community Studios on this Friday afternoon here on Burns and Gambo. Dave Burns, John Gambadero hanging out with you on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. There's uh, irony in this story, or maybe just coincidence. There, there's something going on in this story. Because, um, first of all, I don't know why something Charles Barkley said a couple of weeks ago is getting attention now. I, I because I I, I wasn't they had the game last night. Yeah, I guess that's probably why. But I mean, he he made the comments on TNT's Inside the NBA like earlier this month. But Barkley. So Barkley makes comments about the Suns. He makes it a couple of weeks ago. Kind of got picked up 
and AZ Central wrote a story around it today. And then the coincidence or the irony is that Charles Barkley's actually going to be in town tomorrow as they'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of the team that we, that reached the NBA Finals. They'll be honored at halftime of tomorrow's game against the Pacers at Footprint Center. What he said a couple of weeks ago on TNT's Inside the NBA, quote, my Phoenix Suns need to blow it up. The Suns are not going to win a championship, close quotes. <laughs> and then tomorrow, he's going to be on the court at halftime. As they're, and they've got like the whole team out there. Marley's going to be out there. KJ, Sensabalo, Oliver Miller. Um, it's going to be, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. But, um, but should the Suns blow it up? That's kind of the question. No, I think that, I, I think that there's a middle ground here, right? Go all in, blow it up, or, or or hold the course. You got Cam Johnson back, you won a game. Get Booker back, get Paul back, get Campaign back. Make a Jay Crowder trade, give yourself another bench guy, and then go in with what you have and see what see what you can do. See what you I mean, see what you can do. So like I don't think that I don't I don't go to the extreme either way. I don't I don't blow it up and make massive trades, but I also don't go all in and sell out the farm to try to win it this year. I I get everybody healthy. I mean everybody healthy and listen, this team, you know, won, won a record amount of games last year, had the number one overall record. The year before they were in the NBA finals. Yes, they got up set by Dallas, and yes, this year has been devastating with the injuries. Try to get everybody healthy and make a run and see what you could do. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe you, you get some favorable matchups. Um, maybe you win and, and advance and, and build some momentum and, and just see how far this team could go. And then if you don't win at all, then evaluate in the offseason what kind of moves you have to make. Yeah, I don't... I, I- I don't even know. First of all, I, I absolutely don't think they should blow it up, whatever blow it up actually means for Charles Barkley. And, and just for the record, huge Charles Barkley fan, obviously. I'm always interested in what he has to say about the Suns. Every time they're on TNT, I'm always interested in what Chuck has to say about the Suns. Uh, but, uh, but first of all, no, I don't think they should blow it up when they've missed as many games this year, crucial games from crucial players, important players who haven't been available. I, I think to be able to judge the viability of this team is almost impossible possible because of the injuries. I don't even know what blow it up necessarily looks like. I mean, what, what are we you're certainly not talking about you know Devin Cameron Booker. McHale. Yeah, right? I mean, that's because it's... Cameron McHale. Because DA, maybe. I mean, to accept the trade. Well, I mean, Aiton, okay, that let's talk about. Does that count as blowing it up? I don't know. If if we wanted to get this offseason and talk about a DeAndre Ayton trade, I'm all for it. Let's have that conversation. It's just a question of, like we've alluded to many, many times, how appealing is he to the rest of the NBA? How much of a market is there to trade DeAndre Ayton on a contract that plays him, pays him north of $30 million, right? I mean, Cam Johnson... Cam Johnson, you're going to have to make a decision about Cam this offseason. Do you go into the luxury tax deep with him? Do you want to go into it deep with somebody else and, and maybe do a sign-and-trade with him or let him walk and let him go somewhere else? Well, you're I mean, touching on something that's very important here. You know, these these games for Cam Johnson are, are important for him. He's missed 30-something games to you know reestablish his value because – Cam Johnson's been injured. He's been injury prone. And I think that's one of the reasons why he doesn't have a contract extension. So he's going to want to come out and play well and play hard. And he's a restricted free agent. The Suns are proven that they're going to match any offers. If you make an offer, they'll match it. They'd rather, you know, they prefer to do a four-year deal than a five-year deal. It benefits the it benefits the Suns when they can match a restricted offer sheet because it does save them money and it does uh, get them, uh, uh, you know, a, a less of a, a less of a year, one less year. Now I don't know what's going to happen with Cam Johnson, but. I think that that's something you've got to look at the rest of these games. Can he stay healthy? 
Can he play really well? When he's healthy, he's a good player. But you have to factor that in when you're kind of trying to discuss how much money you're going to pay the guy. You have to factor in that he's had some injuries here. Yeah, I I think if we're we're going to use the generic phrase, blow it up, should the Suns blow it up, I think we're talking about five guys who basically represent the Phoenix Suns core. Devin Booker obviously is is not on the table. So really there's four guys that we're talking about because Booker's not in the conversation. It's Mikel, who I think they'd have to be blown away by an offer to move Mikel. I just think they like him too much. They like the, the culture about what he brings. Then I think you're down to three guys. I think you're talking about Chris Paul and kind of the status of his, of his contract, how he plays, how healthy he stays. Does he refine it all kind of the old Chris Paul or is that version of him gone? That's Chris Paul one. DeAndre Ayton, two, and can you move him? Is there a marketplace to move him? And then number three, the marketplace for Cam Johnson. If we're going to talk about radical changes to the Suns as we know it, you're not talking about Book. I really don't think we're talking about Mikel. I think we're talking about those three guys. I think we're talking about Chris Paul. I think we're talking about DeAndre Ayton. And I think we're talking about Cam Johnson. And depending on what they're willing to do salary-wise for Cam and how those negotiations Negotiations go. I'm I'm far more inclined to see them keep everybody together and then try to use the offseason to figure out what they can do to improve the roster to maybe give them that extra thing they need, that extra player they need to give them a chance to make a run over the next couple of years after this one is done. That would be my yeah. inclination. Yeah, and that's why I like. I think it's hard to. Put yourself in a position now where you trade any of those guys without giving them an opportunity to see what they can do when they get healthy. I just don't think you do that. There's no to me. What you know? Why do that now when you can do it in the off season? You know, if a team wants Cam Johnson, they're not looking at nobody's looking at those players as rental players. Anybody looking to trade for a Cam Johnson or Mikael Bridges, a DeAndre? They're looking long term. So the same deal that's available now is going to be available in the off season. Probably even a even better deal in the off season when a team fails and says, "Okay, I need." this guy. But none of those guys are rental players, so there's no reason to make any trades with those guys now. Run it back with everybody. Get everybody healthy. See what you can do in the playoffs. See if you get some favorable matchups and you know, and see how far you go. And if you fail and you want to say, okay, two years in a row, we haven't gotten out of the first round, okay, then I think everybody could justify making you know bigger trades in the offseason. I was watching Chris Paul on the bench last night when the game was going on and, and he's played in he's played in 26 games so far this year, he we and I, I had this thought, and I don't even I don't even know if I know how to articulate it. I don't even know if it's the right thought to have about Chris Paul. So I'm just going to give it a shot here and see how it comes out. I'm looking at Chris Paul sitting on the bench, and I'm wondering if part of the reason the Suns have been so very cautious about Chris and so he's just played in so few games and they, they these injuries that he has, you know, you'd think he'd be back by now and he's not. I wonder if part of that is to if the goal is to have him play as few of regular season games as possible so you give yourself the best chance of getting the best Chris possible for the last 30 games of the regular season and the postseason. Like, just keep him as fresh as you possibly can keep him so that whatever he's got, he gives it to you. And he does it like a like a pitcher that you move to the bullpen because their stuff just doesn't last five or six innings, but you can just let him go for an inning, right? And just say, throw, it, throw it as hard as you can for two innings because that's it. That, I, I wonder, part of me wonders if that's what they're doing with Chris. He's only played in 26 games this year, and there doesn't seem to be any competitive 
compelling rush for them to bring Kim back into the Listen, it's, it's not a, it's not a crazy thought. It kind of goes against everything that you know that James has said because he has said if a guy's available to play, he's available to play. Like you know, if Chris is able to play, he's going to play. And I, I just I, I do wonder, like, because also, like, I, if that's what you have to do. Like, if that's what you have to... I don't want him back next year for $30 right. million. Dollars. Right. I, 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 like, you know if, you're, if you're sitting there like, I got I to gotta give this guy 40 games off to see if I can get him through the playoffs. Like, I don't know that I want to have that guy for $30 million. That is a great counterpoint. And, and my vision of this is really just about this year, right? It's really, okay, what's the best version of Chris we can get for this season and this season only? Because you're right. If you have to do that every year, you know, then you really start getting into questions about whether he's worth it, whether you should be paying him that, et cetera, et cetera. But my kind of idea really is just based on the plan that that this would be his last year here, and you're just trying to figure out a way to maximize what would be his very last year. Again, I don't know this for a fact. I'm just speculating. I'm just thinking out loud. But I was looking at Chris last night, and I thought, man, I wonder if that's what they've been doing all along. It's just trying to save him as long as they possibly can so that he is as fresh as he possibly can be. I don't know. Could be right. Could be wrong. It was just a thought. It's just a yeah, thought. no, it's not a terrible thought. It's, I mean, it's it's not. It does, but it also. Then you take the other thing. And James James Jones did tell us a few weeks ago that like, look, we like we do care about seeding. We yeah, we do care about that. Well, if you if you're basically shutting Chris down until closer to playoff time, I think you are conceding that seeding doesn't matter. I would agree. When we come back on the Burns and Gambo show, it was a busy night for Valley Sports and at the college level. Man, there was some good action last night in Tempe and in Tucson. We'll give you the latest on what's going on with ASU and the tournament hopes next on the Burns and Gambo Show. Burns and Gambo. Afternoons on Arizona Sports. The local sports leader. Three seconds left. Inbounded to Des Cambridge, who heaves it up from backcourt. Yes! Yes! Des Cambridge! From just inside the midcourt strike. Heaves it up and in as the first half comes to an end. Oh, doctor! Tim Healy with the call last night here on Arizona Sports. Unfortunately for ASU, and they had a two-point lead with six minutes to go oh, in that game. They, man, they, they, yep. It was right there. They it had them. Right there. They had them. They had UCLA on the brink. They just they couldn't close. And UCLA with that great defense, UCLA was able to really come through at the end of that game and get stop after stop after stop after stop. And, you know, ASU only had that one basket down the stretch. And I was, you know, I, I was watching that game. Bruins have now won 14 straight. That's their longest winning streak. Since 2007, 2008, they're undefeated in the in the conference. But what an atmosphere at ASU! The, the fans, it was a sellout, and they, they were going crazy. And it was ASU was up 55-52, and then they were up 60-58. But then the Bruins go on this nine nothing run, 16 to two over the final six minutes, and they just kind of pull pull away. You know, the, the Singleton had a huge fast break basket off of a steal to put them up by three, and then I think Hawkins hit the three pointer with about two and a half left put them up by six and he kind of felt like it was kind of they were lo- 
lose the, right around there. You're like, ah, oh, once once UCLA got up by six, got out of feeling that they were going to win the game. Yeah, sixteen to two run to close out the game after that sixty to fifty eight advantage by ASU, and I I really I like. I mean, I didn't like it, but I was kind of struck by what Bobby Hurley said after the game. "Quote: They turned up their they turned their level up, and I think they fed off the fact that they were hitting some shots too. You play teams like this that have been to the Final Four and have those types of guys that have won so many games." They know how to turn it up a little bit down the stretch. They're just not phased by things like that. Remember, this was a team that you know went all the way to the national championship game, or I went all the way to the, the final four, I should say, back in 2021. And a lot of those guys are on that roster. But but you said it about the fans, and and for for a program that you know obviously still tries to find its footing here in the marketplace, that was a record smashing. Attendance last night by the student section. I had people texting me who were there, friends of mine who are like, "This is crazy." You, you know, get down here. You got to get to one of these games. This is unbelievable. The energy in this building right now. They had over fifty two hundred just students in attendance last night, according to Chris Cartman. The previous record for the most students in attendance of an ASU basketball game was thirty nine hundred. They beat it by like thirteen hundred people last wow. night. Wow. I mean, it was insane. Yeah, it was. Thanks to Chris Cartman for tweeting that out. It it was a tremendous atmosphere. It was, you know, no moral victories. I get all of that. Uh, and, of course, now ASU, you know, you, you can't you can't let UCLA beat you twice. Got to beat USC on Saturday. Right. But what a performance to hang in there against the fifth-ranked team in the country. I was I was very impressed by what ASU did right yeah. up until the very end. Look, a win would have done wonders for them. A loss doesn't hurt them. I mean, UCLA's number five in the country. So a loss doesn't hurt them. But I think it just goes to prove that ASU, look, they, they, they need to be an NCAA tournament team uh first four in right now and it, but they 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 deserve to be because they can they can play with these teams asu has a great defense got some really good players um and i think that you know if they can win this game against usc now you can't let down against usc arizona took care of business arizona beat usc pretty handily you know last night they you know they're seven and oh following a loss under tommy lloyd and they had a nice bounce back after that loss to oregon they got a great game out of tabellus here 17 rebounds. It's a career high. They blew them out early. They made a change in their lineup yep. where they, you know, they, they kind of changed the lineup uh, and brought Cedric, lost it off the bench. They brought Cedric, Cedric Henderson, Henderson in, in to start last night. And yep. Pella Larson came off the bench last night. Yeah. Yeah. And off the bench, he did really well. So uh, they made those changes. But what USC had just could not stop the interior game of Tabellus and Omar Ballo. They really struggled with that. So, But if you're ASU, now you've got to take care of business. You don't want to lose these two games. You want to make sure you take care of business against USC. When they, USC's pretty good, too. You know, They're a pretty good team. I watched the USC-UCLA game a few weeks ago, and USC had UCLA on the ropes. I thought they were going to beat them. It was a tremendous game, and they almost won it. So that'll be a, harder, a hard game. USC's going to come to play, but uh, if ASU can rebound and get a win there, that would be huge. With the tournament kind of inching closer. I mean, today's January 20th, so we still have you know, a month, month and a half. Certainly a month from now, bubble talk will kind of dominate as we try to figure out if ASU is going to get into this thing. Where they stand right now at 15-4 and four and a 6-2 and two record in the conference. Uh, Chris Cartman also from Sun Devil Source tweeted this out this morning. ASU dropped five spots in the net ratings. That's kind of the general all-encompassing, sort of like the replace the RPI as sort of the 
the general guide to the best teams in college basketball. They're 44th in the country in the net ratings right now. The only two teams that are ahead of them in the Pac-12 are UCLA and Arizona. They're still a mile ahead of the next closest Pac-12 team, and that's Oregon. So it's it's UCLA, Arizona, ASU third, Oregon fourth. There's a big gap between ASU and Oregon. They're in a good spot. The USC game is important. I was reading a Wilner story yesterday about ASU, and, and he said that the, the most important thing for ASU is to not have any bad losses from here on out because the one thing that might work against ASU come tournament time is their non-conference schedule. It, it, it's not the best, and that's usually a Bobby Hurley strength. It wasn't this year due to a variety of circumstances. He said that's the one thing that they got to be careful about with ASU is that if there's a winnable game on the schedule, you better win it because bad losses, if those start to pile up, that's not only going to push them off the bubble, but then it's right. really going to highlight that non-conference schedule and how you know kind of poor it is, and they might use that against them. You want to try to not have to make the Pac-12 tournament a situation where you got to win two games. Yeah, yeah. You know, you want to try to you know you win against USC. You're, you're, you're solid. You know, again, no no harm, no foul in losing a number five team in the country, UCLA. It's not going to ding you. A win would have done been tremendous, but it's not going to ding you. So now what you got to do is just you know split split here, and then put yourself in a position where you win enough games to where it's not going to come down to the Pac-12 tournament. Because if it does, you know that is just a lot of pressure. I mean, you have to, you, you have to win a game or two to advance. If, if you're one of those teams that the you know Lenardi feels or, or Jerry Palm feels is on the on the bubble, or, and and then you go into the tournament, that's a lot of pressure there to win a game or two. Yeah, no doubt. And, and then of course U of A. You mentioned what happened last night against USC. They've got UCLA coming up this weekend. That should be a hell of a game to watch too in the conference. So um, it, it was a busy night in Tempe. It was a busy night in state with the college basketball, and uh, certainly it's. Uh, it's always a little sweeter when ASU gets into the tournament, too. Gives us some real kind of rooting interest locally beyond U of A for people who don't care about U of A as much to see ASU in there. We'll see what happens over the next month or so to get themselves in a position to go. When we come back, as the Cardinals continue to search for their next head coach, what's the latest news surrounding that position? We will catch you up. The 4 o'clock reset is next on the Burns and Gambo Show.